Our text this morning is 2 Samuel chapter 5, first five verses. 2 Samuel 5, 1 through 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In, past, in times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, who does not know David? One of the almost most well-known persons that we meet in the Bible, just sang about him in Psalm 78. Shepherd boy, who was anointed king over Israel, man after God's own heart. He's one of the central figures in the Bible, in the history of redemption. And following our chapter and our text, the anointing of David, you'll meet his name throughout the rest of the Bible. He comes back Time and again in the Old Testament, he comes back in the New Testament, the beginning of the Gospels, he comes back in the book of Revelation. So a central figure in the history of salvation. And that's why our text this morning, you could say, is one of the highlights in the Bible. One of them. There are more. But certainly this is one. You find it recorded here in 2 Samuel 5, if you want to check it out, in Second, First uh, Chronicles 11 and 12. It's also recorded. In, in fact, it has more information there, especially in chapter 12, than we have here in Samuel. It is it's rather short here. Just a statement of what happened. But it is a highlight in this history that has a lot of ups and downs, the history of salvation. You have low points. You have high points. And as I here is one of the high points. I said there are more of them. You can think of what happened in Abraham's life. You can think of Moses and how Moses led the people out of Egypt 
Joshua who brought him into the promised land. And here's David. And certainly with David, we're not at the end of the high points and the high lights in this history of salvation. It will go on from here to Christ and to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what we want to do this morning is look at this anointing within that context. There's something that precedes it. There's also something that follows it. And within that whole of God's work, we have here a highlight, a high point. And that also helps us to understand who we are, who our king is, and what is our calling towards him. So I proclaim to you God's word this morning under this theme, the Lord gives his king to his people. The Lord gives his king to his people. We'll first look at the road that brings this king to this people. Then we'll look at the recognition of the king by the people. And then thirdly, the relationship between the king and the people. Text begins with, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. Then. When is this? So that means that what is happening here is connected to what precedes. The previous chapters, first of all, if you go to the first couple chapters of 2 Samuel, a lot of things are happening there. We read about the death of Saul, the death of Jonathan in the battle against the Philistines. And that was followed by a terrible civil war within Israel. The northern tribes followed the house of Saul. And Abner, the commander of Saul's army, he was instrumental in that, in, in putting the son of Saul onto the throne, Ishbosheth. And, and the south, Judah, followed David. And he became king in Hebron. And so there was war. But the relationship between Abner and the son of Saul had soured. And so Abner had gone over to the other side, to, to David. But Joab, the commander of David, didn't like that. So he had killed Abner, murdered him. And then the son of Saul, Ishmael, says he had been murdered as well. And that's chapter 4. So after all that gruesome all these gruesome events, now we say, we read that all the tribes come together to David at Hebron. So now they're all together. The civil war is over, the bloodshed is done, and now they can work together. One king over one people. That's, you could say, the immediate context. But there is a much deeper context here as well. For what is happening here is something remarkable. God's work doesn't start here. God's work started already in the beginning. And what God is doing here is he is giving his king to his people. And so we want to consider the road that the Lord took to come to this point. It's a long road. It's a winding road. 
a road with ups and downs, twists and turns, the Lord took his time to finally give his king to his people. And he had a reason for that. So as we look at this road that precedes the anointing of the king in Israel and the office of the king in Israel, we have to go back all the way to the beginning of the Bible. The first person that God created, Adam. You could say that Adam was king in God's creation in paradise. He was called to rule over God's creation, to subdue it. He was created in the image of God to have dominion over this world. So in Adam, God himself came to this world to rule. But then Adam rebelled, and we rebelled in and with Adam. And we give this world over to the enemy. And we we lost our crown, and we became slaves Slaves to sin. And it was the end of our position. But the Lord doesn't stop there. The Lord said, I will go on. I will continue with my kingdom. And I will bring my king into this world. He doesn't say that right away in, with these kind of words in Genesis, although he says that the seed of the woman will destroy the seed of the serpent. But later on in Genesis, we do learn that there will come a king. Because what is said about Judah, by Jacob when he blesses him, that from him will come the one who has this scepter, the ruling staff. And that from Judah will come the one who will rule God's people. So the Lord said, already in the days of the patriarchs, I will bring my king back to rule over my people. To restore my kingdom. Now why did he not do it right then and there? Because more was lost with the fall into sin than just a crown. What does a king need? A king needs a people. Because what is a king without subjects? So before giving a king, the Lord first of all had to make a people. A people for himself. And that's what he did through Abraham. And to Isaac. And Jacob and the twelve patriarchs. That's what Genesis is all about. And then then he makes this people his own when he takes them out of Egypt. And he brings them to Mount Sinai. And he says, you are a kingdom of priests to me. A nation that belongs to me. And so God made, first of all, a people. His people. But a people need a a land to live in, to dwell in, under the rule of the king. A territory. So what does the Lord do? He redeems his people out of Egypt. He brings them to Mount Sinai. He says, you're mine, and I'm going to bring you into my land. The land, by the way, I already promised to Abraham. 
And so the Lord brings his people into his land. And Joshua is allowed to do that. And at that time, the Lord did not give a king either. He again took his time. The time of the judges. 300 years of ups and downs. And you know the refrain in the book of Judges. What did they learn from the time of the judges? That they needed a king. So before the Lord gives a king, he also makes them aware why they need a king. Because whenever there was no king or no leader, they went back to the idols and then the other nations came and oppressed them. That cycle that you see in in, in Judges. They needed someone to keep them close to the Lord. They needed someone to fight the enemy so that they could live in peace and in rest in the land that God gave to them as his people. That was God's plan. But the people had no patience for God to bring about his plan. They wanted it instantly. And they wanted it instantly while the Lord was already working on his king. That's the beautiful message of the book of Ruth. We're in the the midst of the darkness of all the sin of Israel. The Lord is working his way and preparing his king. But they don't have the patience for that, the people. So they want one, and the Lord gives them one. And in a way, it becomes also their punishment. They get Saul. Well, it looked fine in the beginning, but it became a big disappointment. And that's why in 1 Samuel 16, we read about David's anointing. And the Lord says, yes, Saul is not the one that I have chosen. I have chosen someone else. And then when you read 1 Samuel 16, when the Lord finally comes to the point where he will bring his king to his people to rule in his land, then it goes not according to human calculations. The Lord sees what lives inside. The Lord says, not what is on the outside. And so a young boy is taken from the sheepfold and he's made anointed king. But he cannot and he's not allowed to take on the crown right away. Also in David's own life, there has, something has to happen. In a way, mirroring what happened in Israel's life. That they have to learn what it means to be God's people. And so David too had to learn. And he learned through suffering. He learned through suffering when he had to flee from Saul. He had to learn that he could not take the crown by his own power in his own time. But that the Lord would provide. And David learned his lesson. He didn't kill Saul. Even though he had time's opportunity to do so. He had to wait And even after Saul is killed by the Philistines and Jonathan is gone, he has to wait 
For that is the kind of king that the Lord wants over his people. The one who waits for the Lord and who obeys and follows as the Lord indicates. And that is the point that we are at now in our text. All that history leads up to this. What a road for Israel, for David, for God's people. What an amazing road. God wants his right man for this task. The one he had chosen, whose heart is directed to him. But he comes in God's time and in God's way. And so what we see in our text, the opening words. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, You be our king. It is the Lord at work. After all these centuries and generations of ups and downs. And now he says, here is my king. Well, as I said already, it's a highlight, a high point, but not the last one. Because if you go on in Second Samuel, that if in, indeed eventually, initially goes up. David becomes an amazing king, but it doesn't take much, and he goes way down, and he sins with Bathsheba, and he murders his, his servant. So he is not the king either, who can do what God wants him to do. We need a better king. And therefore, as we look at our text this morning... We also learn something about our God and how he takes care of his people. In in giving this king, he already shows us the king that we need and the king that we have received. Of course, that is our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that he is king over his people. That he rules. That he has his throne in heaven. But that took quite a road too to come there. And therefore the road that David had to go and that Israel had to go to come to this point, we see foreshadowed. The road that Christ had to go through. For when we look at our king, the great son of David, who rules over God's people, then too we stand in awe as we look back that after so many generations and so many ups and downs, God kept his promise. And and the Gospels, they, they show us that the line of David, Solomon was born in an amazing way by God's miraculous work in a stable in Bethlehem. But God remained faithful to his promises. And also there in the Gospels we read how this king was the king first who had to learn obedience through his suffering. And it was a difficult road that he had to go through. The pain, the agony, the rejection, 
in order to become king. But for the glory set before him, he suffered it. He went through it. And as he did that, he purchased for God and for himself a people. Not taken out of Egypt. No, taken out of the house of bondage to sin. By his own blood. And that's why you are his people. What an amazing road. God who remains faithful and God who makes a people set aside for himself through the blood of Jesus Christ. And then also he creates a territory, you could say, where this king will rule. And that is when the Spirit is poured out upon the congregation. And the communion of the saints flourishes. Where there are those who are ruled by the Spirit and the Word. And then we see our King ruling, governing. He came as the perfect one. Israel here, they received this King. And so we receive our King. The one of whom God said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Indeed, when you look at the outside, who would consider that indeed he was the arm of God? He was rejected by man, despised. We esteemed him not, but yet he is the king of God. Crowned with thorns, but now exalted in glory. What a blessing that we are allowed to know this king. And that's Revelation 5, when John sees this lamb, and and he can see what has happened to this lamb. He has been slaughtered. Through his death, he purchased for himself a people, and now is allowed to open the scroll of God. That means to rule God's kingdom, to bring about God's work. So, brothers and sisters... What a comfort to us to know our King, who He is, how He obtained His cross, His crown in perfect obedience, how He obtained His people, and how He lives and rules among God's people. So that is the road. And that brings us to our next point. The recognition. Verse 1 and following. The people of Israel say the tribes, all the tribes say we are your bone and flesh. In times past when Saul was king over, it was you who led us. The Lord has said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people. Now you can say, well, what is this anointing here? Because they anointed him. Verse 3, wasn't he anointed already? Yes, he was anointed already. We read that in 1 Samuel 16. But you could say that this is from the side of the, of the people. In, in 1 Samuel 16, is the Lord who says within the family uh, situation of Jesse, this is my, my king. But here we have it. Would the people then also recognize that? Say, yes, he is our king. Because look, at the reasons they give for doing this. There's three reasons. 
Number one, we are your bone and flesh. Number two, you led us out and you brought us in. It means you were our military commander. And number three, the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people. Those are the three reasons they give. And then they anointed him. Have a look at those reasons. The first one, because here you see how the people have learned also from what happened in Saul and all that was connected with it. Because the first reason is we are your bone and flesh. Well, remember what we read in Deuteronomy 17? The Lord says, when you get your king, make sure he is one of your own, not a foreigner. Your bone, your flesh, one who belongs to your people, one who's one of God's covenant people. Well, they said, that's what you are, David. You are one of our own. So, in a way, it fills the requirement of Deuteronomy 17. The people are not going here by, we want a king like this world, but now they're listening to, what does God say about this king? Which one do we need? It is one who is one of our own flesh and bones. And then the second reason, he says, they say, well, you have let us out. They recognize Saul was king, but is it actually, as Saul was king, it was you through whom we went out and came in, and it points to the military campaigns, that points to the victory over the enemies. You did that. We were blessed through you. By your work, we, we received God's blessings of, of peace and protection. What an admission. What an admission to say, yes, Saul was king, but you were the one who led us. And then they even add, as a third reason, well, the Lord is the one who chose you. The Lord has given you this task. So they were aware. They were aware that Samuel had anointed David. It's remarkable that there's no, no word here about, well, if you had known that, why didn't you still follow Abner and, and Ishbosheth and, and, and follow him as king opposite to David? Why didn't you engage in the civil war? Not a word about it. Because from now on they go together. The things that we cover and do not always come back to. It's a beautiful confession, isn't it? And we read it with the mind what we just said earlier that what it's written here is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Because here again we see how the Lord in giving this king and his blessings to his people because David was a blessing to the people. But in doing that, he already shows us so much more and we see the contours of what is to come in the great son of David. Isn't he one of us? Our flesh and blood? We have a king who rules us, who, who is one of us, born of the Virgin Mary, of the house of David, like his brothers in every respect, except for sin. And this, the second reason you were the one who led us out and brought us in. Who is the one who, who has brought you here? Who, who watches over the church through the centuries? Who does that? 
our King, Jesus Christ. And who is the one appointed? As Hebrews says, he did not take this honor by himself, but he was, it was given to him. I think of Psalm 2. You are my son today. I have become your father. That is in terms of kingship. He is the one appointed by God. So brothers and sisters, we have to recognize who is our king. And we may do so as we listen to our text. That we have a king who is one of us. Who in his ministry leads us. Who in his task now fulfilling it. The right hand of God leading us. Protecting us. And he has the approval of the father himself. Appointed by him. Do you see how richly blessed you are? Do you recognize him? For that was the point we said. The people recognize who he is. Do we? Do we recognize who our king is? And what that means? Well, that comes... And the last point, what does that mean? Verse 3, they come to David at Hebron. And then it says, David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. A covenant. And a covenant is a binding relationship between two parties where each side makes a pledge to the other side, and you can hold each other to it. You can bind each other to it. So here, David says, yes, I will be your king, and you can count on me. You can appeal to me that I will be a godly king. And the people say, and we will be your people, and respect you and honor you as our king. That's the relationship from both sides. They made a covenant, David and the people. But notice that it says they made a covenant before the Lord. So this covenant that they have as the people and David is anchored in another covenant, and that is the covenant between God and his people, because here God is giving his king to his people. Now, when you read Deuteronomy 17, where it speaks about the requirements for a king, you also read there, the one thing that this king had to do was write out with his own hand the law of God. And he had to have that with him. He had to read in it. When you write something out, then, then you make it your own. It's in your own handwriting. And so this king has to write out the law of God's covenant, who God is and who he is under God and who he has to be toward his people. So when it says here, they made a covenant between David and the people before the Lord, then it also means that David and Israel both know we are under God's law. He is the one who rules us. This is the king that we need. 
brothers and sisters, again, we go, we look further. We look further to the New Testament. We have a king who has made a pledge to us, who says, I'm there for you. I'm committed to you. Why? Because the Father has sent me. And then we may respond and we say, yes, we want to follow you. He who is our own blood and we are his people. He is committed to us. And we are committed to him. That's the way it should be. And you see, that teaches us so much about the church, about the congregation. The congregation, you, you're not just an organization among so many organizations in this world. The church is different in that it has a king in heaven, Jesus Christ. And he is the only head. He rules. He governs. And when we see the amazing road in which he has been given to us by the Father, then we stand in awe. We look back and we see in the Bible how the Lord has given his king to us. But then also we can look ahead and know he will continue to go with us. So the church is characterized by that covenant between the king and the people. He is committed to us and we are committed to him. No, the world doesn't recognize that. The world looks at us and says there's just an organization like so many others because they do not know God. They do not know that we were bought with precious blood. And that we have a king who is crowned with glory. The lamb who has the scroll and is able to open it. Because you, congregation, you are the evidence that he is king. And therefore how we live and how we function and what we do will also then reflect that and must reflect that. And how does it show? Or what characterizes the church? To obey the king. We will do what he tells us to do. Unconditional obedience. That's the first commandment. Also in the church. I think here where the catechism says about the first commandment, you shall have no other gods and then it explains that, Lord's Day 34, it explains it and it ends, in short, that I forsake all creatures rather than do the least thing against his will. That is the rule in the church. That is what he did in our place and that we now also want to show in how we live for him. So, brothers and sisters, in our text, the Lord presents the king to you. Follow him, obey him, serve him, because he is the king crowned 
with lasting glory. Amen. Our song of response is Psalm 72, distances 3, 5, and 10. Mm-hmm.